Our primary reading this morning is from James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Would you listen now for the word of the Lord? What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, does not have, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. But even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and then sent them out by another way? For as the body is apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. The word of the Lord. In the beginning of this series in our epistle of James, I mentioned that Martin Luther, the priest who started the Protestant Reformation, did not like James. He wanted the whole epistle out of the Bible. Uh, Since then, some of you have asked, well, why? Why did Luther not like James? Well, this passage today is why. Because the verse of the Bible that changed Luther's mind about Christianity, that sent him on a path for challenging and ultimately defying the power of the Roman Catholic Church, was not anything in James, but rather this verse in Romans 1. For it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so you take this verse in Romans 1.17, which is written by the Apostle Paul, and you hold it up to the writing in chapter 2 today, which is written by Jesus' little brother James, and you start to feel a tension, a tension about whether we know we're in right relationship with God because we have faith that we are believing in God, we're trusting God, or we're in right relationship with God because of works. That is, the good things we do, being a generally good person. That's what it means by works. But it's not just Romans 1. When you read the rest of the Apostle Paul, you find verses like this in Galatians 2. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Or we have Ephesians 2. For grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. And yet, 
as we read James this morning, he seems to be saying literally the opposite. Look at his conclusion in verse 223. You see that a person is justified by works and not faith alone. I mean, y'all, look at the wording here. It's like he's publicly refuting Paul. And so which one is it? How can we feel confident in our reconciliation and relationship with God? Are we justified by faith apart from our works, or are we justified by faith and works? How we answer this question will have a significant impact on how we understand our faith and might just determine whether you decide to be Protestant or Catholic. Now, there's a couple ways that we can resolve this tension. The first of which is just to say that these scriptures simply contradict each other. James had one idea of what Christianity was. Paul had a different idea of what Christianity was. They have irreconcilable views on this. And if this is your approach, this is one position held by some scholars, it's a possible one to hold. It's because that while Christians believe that the Bible is a unified narrative about God and people, because the Bible is written by at least 40 different authors, it is not unified in all its theology and doctrine. At times, the Bible does debate itself. And so maybe this is just one of those places. However, We also know that Paul and James did meet together shortly after Paul went from being a persecutor of Christians to a missionary for Christians. And James signed off on the essentials of Paul's theology. And so to the extent that James is refuting anyone is probably the people who have misunderstood Paul and not actually Paul. And so I don't think we need to say that the scriptures are irreconcilable here. I don't think we have to pick one author over the other. The other solution is to say that Paul and James are simply answering different questions in different contexts. In fact, one theologian likes to say that Paul and James are using the same words, but they have different dictionaries. It's like you can hardly compare the two. It's, it's Pauline apples and Jamesian oranges, okay? And again, this has a good bit of truth to it. Paul is writing to non-Hebrews, and he's primarily addressing how God initially forgives you and brings you into relationship. Where James, on the other hand, is writing to Hebrews and primarily addressing how you maintain relationship with God once you've already been forgiven. However, this is a little too clean of a distinction, and we don't necessarily get that chronology from either Paul or James. Plus, we don't know if they were using different definitions for their words because they don't ever actually define their terms. All we know is that they are using the same words in Greek, pistis for faith and ergon for works. So what I want to do today is to receive those two explanations in part to to keep them in our minds, not so we can blunt the power of James' teaching or, or make James just magically blend with Paul, but so that we can engage James in a way that is actually good news. And so with that goal in mind, let's begin at chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily in food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them what brings needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. In 2015, the comedian Anthony Jeselnik was one of the first people to publicly make fun of the phrase, thoughts and prayers, which by this point had become what politicians say when they wanted to look compassionate in the wake of a violent tragedy, but also signaling that they would do nothing to stop further tragedies from occurring. And so Jeselnik, uh, in his thoughts and prayers routine, references the 2012 Aurora movie theater shooting and the 2013 Boston Marathon bombing as these occasions for fake concern. And so of thoughts and prayers, he says this, do you know what that's worth? Nothing. Less than nothing. You're not even giving your time, your money, or even your compassion. This is precisely what James means about our faith that is primarily expressed in platitudes and cliches. For many people, their practice of Christianity amounts to little more than sentimentalism. We see suffering. We see injustice. And we only kind of pretend to care. Thoughts and prayers. And then we even forget to pray. Or maybe it's something like, I feel religious, or, or I feel spiritual. I, I, I feel like I'm a Christian because that's what I was raised with, or Christianity is the religion I relate to more than any other religion, so sure, yeah, I guess I'm a Christian. I have faith. But James says spiritual sentimentalism, even Christian sentimentalism, is not genuine Christianity. Thoughts and prayers may be okay at first, but alone what good is it? The thoughts and prayers kind of Christianity is a dead kind of faith. Now, this is probably the easiest of James's critiques to accept. The next one is probably a little more threatening. Let's look at verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. This is something of a blink and you miss it line, but James here is actually making a reference to our first reading this morning in Deuteronomy 6. When he says in verse 19 that you believe God is one, He's not talking about a generic belief in God uh, or a general kind of monotheism, but rather what is known in Judaism as the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is religious doctrine. This is a creedal confession of God's singularity, all of which would have been recited by observant Jews even to this day. And so note the contrast. James is contrasting the correct theology that a Hebrew Christian would have. And then he's placing it alongside the correct theology that he says a demon would have. James says that demons have some pretty accurate beliefs about God too, perhaps even more accurate than my beliefs about God. And the implied question is again the same as spiritual sentimentalism. You do well. Congratulations. But what good is it? 
for those of us growing up in really reformed or doctrinally focused branches of Christianity, this is something that might freak us out a little bit. Why? Because we were taught that we would know we are justified, that we would know that we are reconciled with God because our theology was superior and our doctrine was sound. That was our assurance. Other denominations, Catholic, Lutheran, liberal, Presbyterians, well, they didn't have sound doctrine and theology, so mm, maybe they're not saved. But James is painfully clear. I can believe all the correct things about God and not have a saving faith. Believing that I have superior theology doesn't assure me of anything. In fact, believing that I have better theology than other Christians may actually be a hindrance to my own salvation if it lulls me into believing that I need nothing else. Amen. Thanks. Thoughts and prayers, Christianity, isn't genuine Christianity. And neither is theology and doctrine Christianity. So James says there are two kinds of imposter forms of faith. The thoughts and prayers form and the theology and doctrine form. He says faith must work synergistically, interacting with our feelings and with our creeds in order to have a genuine, justifying, reconciling Christian faith. And so to drive this point home... James is going to lift up two characters from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Scriptures, Abraham and Rahab. Let's go to Abraham verse, starting in verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the Scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, when we look at the life of Abraham as modern people, we find him a, as a pretty problematic guy. The bro made some really questionable decisions in his recorded lifetime. In fact, I think one of the reasons that Paul uses Abraham almost in the opposite manner of James to prove his point about being justified by faith over works is that Abraham is not a moral role model. But he did have just enough faith to listen to God and actually begin a spiritual and literal journey with God. But remember, James is talking to a Hebrew audience. And for first century rabbinic Judaism, there was no better paragon of faith than Abraham. At the time, he was the faithful patriarch of the Hebrew people, willing to sacrifice even his one and only son out of obedience to God. And so James says, look, if you know the story of Abraham and everyone in his audience would, clearly Abraham's faith wasn't a hopes and prayers kind of faith. If anything, he tried to control his future too much. And it wasn't a theology and doctrines faith. Abraham didn't have the Torah or even the Ten Commandments. No, Abraham was known and remembered for what he did. That his belief in God translated to working with God and ultimately friendship with God. So what does this mean? Well, simply put, for James, genuine Christianity is faith and works 
And if we believe that the Bible is authoritative, and I do, then I think we have to submit to this on some level. But, as Protestants, if this still makes us uncomfortable, I think this is mostly a semantic issue. We're we're kind of conditioned to be allergic to this kind of phrasing. And so, I think we can also say that faith is demonstrated by works. Or faith is expressed by works. That kind of phrasing, I believe, is used by both Martin Luther and John Calvin. We don't need to become Catholic. Luther had 95 reasons for protesting the Catholic Church. We still got 94, okay? But on the other hand, even if this is not supposed to make us Roman Catholic, perhaps it is supposed to make us uncomfortable. Because here's the thing. It is more than likely that there is someone here today or watching online that isn't experiencing the genuine kind of Christianity that James describes. And you might not have realized it until the last 10 minutes. And for your own sake and your own good, James wants you to be disturbed. But here's the other thing. I can't be the judge of that. No one can be the judge of that. No person, no church gets to determine if you're really Christian. This is one of the ways that the Roman Catholic Church messed up so bad for centuries by weaponizing James in order to control people. And I know that's why for some of you, this section of James is so scary. Because at some point in your life, religious people weaponized it against you. But James' diagnostic of what genuine Christianity is cannot be used as a weapon. It's only meant to be a mirror. How can we be sure of this? Look at verse 25. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. The story of Rahab, if you're not familiar with it, is basically this. For over a thousand years before the first Christians, uh, some Hebrew spies sneak into a hostile pagan city on a reconnaissance mission, and they hide out in what is essentially a brothel. Uh, Rahab, who is likely a prostitute or perhaps the madame of the establishment, realizes that the Hebrew god is stronger than her pagan deities and decides that it's probably in her best interest to switch sides or at least hedge her bets. And so she hides the spies and gets them safely out of the city. In exchange, when the city is captured by the Hebrews, Rahab is spared and she actually settles down and starts a new life with the Hebrew people. Also, she becomes part of the direct lineage of Jesus. So why is it important that James includes this biblical figure alongside Abraham? Because the works that come through faith can look very different for different people. 
And the type of person who may have genuine faith may not look like what you expect. The first century Hebrew Abraham, the legendary patriarch of the Hebrew people, that makes sense. Of course, he has genuine faith. That's practically a cliche. But a pagan prostitute? She has genuine faith as well? And if she does, if James holds her up as justified, how can anyone be the judge of another person's faith? You just can't know. And yet I really believe that James' diagnostic is not just for making us uncomfortable in personal self-reflection. I think there's good news in it, particularly for the type of person who finds Parkside. I think for a lot of us, the two types of Christianity that James deconstructs here were at one point places of confidence for us. It, it was a, a way we found safety in the condition of our faith. But now, maybe not so much. Perhaps I used to really feel God in my prayers, in emotional worship, but now not so much. For whatever reason, you don't feel God the way you used to. Thoughts and prayers feel hollow in a way they didn't used to. Or perhaps you memorized so many Bible verses, developed airtight, systematic theology, and you even actually enjoyed arguing with people on the internet. But now, not so much. For whatever reason, you have doubts about Christianity. You might not even believe half of the theology and doctrine that you used to. And so if you don't emotionally feel God in the way that you used to, and you intellectually don't believe everything about Christianity that you used to, well, then maybe I don't have a saving faith. Maybe I'm not reconciled with God. Maybe I'm not experiencing genuine Christianity. I'm just kind of waiting for it to fall off me or me off it. But if that's my struggle this morning, I need to tell myself. I need to preach to myself. I need to remind myself just what Jesus came to do. Jesus did not live, die, and rise again for thoughts and prayers. Jesus Christ did not preach and commission his disciples to share a message of theology and doctrines. Jesus proclaimed holistic good news, freedom, and healing, and rises from the dead to show that God is truly working, working to make all things new. This is why I believe James gives me a good alternative. That it doesn't matter if my faith looks more like an idealized version of Abraham or it's the messiness of Rahab. But rather, if I can look at my life and see where I have loved my neighbor, 
where I can see where my heart has been softened and I've shown mercy. Where I realize that I am actually participating in the kingdom of God, a kingdom that protects the vulnerable and brings in the outcast and lifts up the oppressed. Then James says, I can also take comfort. I can find assurance that despite my feelings, that despite my doubts, my faith is as genuine as ever. It's different. It's more complex. But it's real. It's real. God is still at work in my works. So God is still faithful in my faith. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, Colin, we've got some questions. Is there another way that I can phrase, I'll pray for you so that it doesn't sound like an insult? Right. <laughs> Y'all got to I'll pray for you. Okay. Uh, the, personally, the way I love it is when someone says, ask me, how can I pray for you? Is there anything I can specifically pray for? And that shows they're not just having this patronizing thing, but they're actually engaging where my heart is, and they're asking me where I feel my needs are. So maybe just the simplest thing is to say, is there something you want me to pray for about, or is there a way I can pray for you? And then the best thing, honestly, is if you, like, another day or a few days go by and you just say, hey, I want you to know I did pray for you. Because I feel like half the time someone says they're praying for you, they forget. And I'm like, did they even? So it's just to know that someone did is, I think, a really beautiful follow-up. The faith and works comparison seems clear enough for salvation. However, what about judgment? Aren't we going to be judged for every secret thing, whether good or evil? Is that not reason enough to try and do good works? Yeah, I think if, if you take the salvation component completely out and just know that God is like observing your life and, and, and cheering you on in order to be a participant in the work of the kingdom, I would just, by virtue of the fact that I know that God is, is going to be weighing those things in my life, I would want to do these things because one, what God has already done for me and what God has invited me into. And so even if you're not worried about the salvation component, um, James is particularly focused on this idea, especially in Jewish theology, right? A final judgment, an evaluation thing. I don't think that needs to be scary, mm -hmm. but I think it still needs to be something that we think about going, yes, God will look at the totality of my life and, and hopefully I'll be able to say like, God, I, I did what I could and God will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And that's something I want to live into. All right. What about those who don't know theology and doctrine, but see works as in doing nice things for others or being a good person, but not having faith? Is that true Christianity? seems like faith is the essence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there are people, uh, I think scripture we've often called them, called people of peace, people mm -hmm. who are, are seeking the good of a community. And so that is not Christianity, right? Because they're doing good things, but it's not Christianity, because that is revolving around Christ. Yeah. And so I think that what the church has sometimes done in an unhelpful way is to be like, well, what you're doing isn't important, or what you're doing isn't valuable, because if you're not doing it in the name of Jesus, then it's somehow wrong, or it's insufficient. I think we should be affirming anybody who is participating in the work of the kingdom, even unknowingly, right? And then that becomes an invitation to be like, I, I love what you're doing, I love the values you share, I love what you're working towards. Did you know that God actually has a big plan for all this, and making it real, and deep, and beautiful, and and covering the whole world, and that's part of an invitation to experience something beyond just the works, but connecting it to this beautiful story of faith. 
Nice. One last question uh -oh. from me. So on our prayer cards, we ask people, how can we pray for you? So how can people get in touch with Parkside when they need works from us, when they need real help? And what are one or two examples where we've actually done this? Yeah, so this is, um, some, someone has told me this is kind of a weird thing they've experienced at Parkside, <laughs> where they're like, Great. so I came to you with a prayer request, and then you like did something. And you didn't just say, like, I'll pray for you. I'm like, well, well yeah, if we could do something, we'd do something. And that was apparently a strange experience for them because yeah. they normally they just say the prayer and goes, we'll pray for you, and then nothing happens. Um, but if you are experiencing things that you feel like you need practical needs for, right, you can put that in a, put in a prayer card and say, I need X. You say, I want to follow up, right? You'd say, like, and then the follow-up can be, cool, we're praying for you, but how can we practically help you? Also, um, we have a prayer team, and so that you can contact them. They can contact deacons. Deacons do tangible things. There are a number of ways to talk to both leaders, deacons, and staff to say, um, these are th things that are going on in my life I need prayer for, and then we can, um, with your with your permission and consent, you know, invite you to say, well, how can we support you in tangible ways? And so feel encouraged that you can do that and you're invited to do that. Thank you. I just wanted people to know that we're not just here for the prayer card and prayer. We're actually trying to help you and want to help you, but we, we need to know how we can help you. Yeah, but, thank you, Sam. That's good. Uh, the other questions that have been submitted, thank you all. Feel free to send in more questions and Colin will answer them tomorrow on Facebook Live. Awesome. Thanks, Sam.